Is artificial intelligence setting up a demotion for the human race? Our guest and Discovery Institute co-founder, George Gilder, sure doesn't think so. This week, we revisit our discussion with George Gilder on a variety of topics in AI, as well as his book titled Gaming AI, Why AI Can't Think But Can Transform Jobs. Now, here's your host of Mind Matters News, Robert J. Marks. Greetings. AI is really good at winning games, but how does this and AI's other accomplishments translate to applications in the real world? When will AI be reduced to practice? Our guest today uh, to talk about this is George Gilder, and George really needs no introduction. He's a friend of movers and shakers from presidents to business luminaries and politicians, and George Gilder's economic and business prophecies have famously been fulfilled again and again. And he is the co-founder with Bruce Chapman of the Discovery Institute. And of course, the Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence is an arm of Discovery Institute. George Gilder has penned a new monograph for the Bradley Center entitled Gaming Intelligence, Why AI Can't Think But Can Transform Jobs. The monograph is available like everything else in the world from Amazon.com in print form and in Kindle. George, welcome. Thank you for spending time with us. Great to be here, Bob. You're quoted in it. You're the same Bob Marks who uh, imparts great wisdom about uh, the limitations of AI in the pages of this monograph. That's right. I I noticed that, and uh, I wasn't going to talk about that because that would be uh, flying my own colors. and uh, But thank you for mentioning that. Thank you for flying my colors. Okay. So really appreciate it. You begin your monograph with the following statement. I'm going to quote here. Artificial intelligence has become this epoch's prime battleground in technology, philosophy, and even religion. At stake is the agenda of a new demotion of the human race. We'll unpack this a little bit as we go along, but how in general do you see AI as as a new demotion of the human race. This is pretty serious uh, prose. Well, it declares that the human mind is just a machine that can be simulated by computer algorithms. And so just as it was believed that the great uh, geocentric model of the universe was replaced by the Copernican view that had a, had the sun the center of the universe, thus demoting the human endeavor from uh, being this the center of everything to becoming a, a mere planet of a larger body. And, and ever since then, science has been further demoting the Earth to a fringe planet in uh, one of multiple parallel universes that are often (laughs) assumed without any uh, grounding or persuasive evidence. So this is machine learning and AI, artificial intelligence, are believed to be headed for a singularity, as my friend Ray Kurzweil calls it, in which... uh, Machines will be able to outperform human minds in every contingency and application, and human beings really will become unnecessary. And indeed, uh, the vision is that 
these machines will become so powerful that they can replicate and advance themselves so that uh, they will project their intelligence and technology through the universe and ultimately colonize the whole universe in a way that mere human beings with our biological carbon-based bodies never could accomplish. So it is a way of diminishing the human mind to some material phenomenon that can be reduplicated readily by a machine and then constantly exceeded by machines. You have a phrase for this in your book. You call it materialist superstition. I really like the combination of those two words. And that's really what you're talking about. Uh, and you also refer to something called the AI movement, which which adopts this material superstition. Um, how widespread is this AI movement? What is the AI movement? Well, from China to the United States. But oddly, even though AI is advancing just as fast in China, if not faster than in the United States, there's less inclination in China to regard it as a threat or as some uh, channel to usurping the human brain. It's, so uh, it really is a specialty of the American, American academic science. Uh, this materialist superstition that uh, I call it the flat universe theory, that, <laughs> that which is just as delusional as the flat earth theory. The flat universe theory says there's nothing out there but physics and chemistry. And that, uh, and that is the materialist superstition, the belief that there's nothing there except physics and chemistry. So this is yeah this is very interesting especially since China is notably atheistic and therefore materialistic and they're sinking I believe the figure I heard was 30 billion dollars into development of artificial intelligence and yet you say that this this movement isn't as dominant there as it is here that's that's really interesting yeah i i, I think they're they're just more practical at using these machines to enhance human capabilities and that's really what AI does. I mean, recently, uh, the DeepMind division of Google, which is their really most sophisticated AI division, although there's AI all over Google, but DeepMind has recently mastered protein folding. Yes. And that is a, a major achievement. You know, the we've it's it's the sort of last frontier of the biotech revolution or one of the latest frontiers of the biotech revolution we discovered dna and the code coding that uh translates directly into proteins by a very complex process from the dna code to the ribosome to the 22 amino acids in a protein. But until you can actually fold the protein in the complex way that proteins, plectics are manifested, you can't really create a protein that works. So this breakthrough by machine learning and AI is very impressive. It, and it's just the, if you have a process that's deterministic and can be expressed in symbols, then uh, AI 
and uh, machine learning has awesome capabilities. And uh, they've achieved a goal that uh, humans, with their much slower algorithmic processes, humans have uh, inductive capabilities and imaginative capabilities and moral capabilities and sensory integration and all kinds of of uh, mental capabilities that that are really absent in AI, but but AI, if, if you got the problem structured and you and it's deterministic and the inputs can be rendered mathematically, can do billions or even trillions of parallel operations a second, and thus achieve absolutely amazing acceleration of human capabilities. But no matter how fast they compute, they, there's no trigger point where they suddenly become a mind. Yes, absolutely. One of the things, Alpha, AlphaFold, they have algorithms that predict the structure of a protein based on its genetic makeup. I'm really not an expert in protein folding, but one of the quotes that I found from uh, DeepMind CEO, I think his name is Demis Hassabis. That's right. He said, quote, it's still a long way to go before we can say we've solved protein folding in any meaningful way. So they've made lots of progress, but they still have a long way to go, I guess, towards the final solution is what I understand. I guess that's true. However, you know, they, they did solve for, um, I think, 38 out of 43 of the protein folding problems that they confronted were solved by the deep mind process. And, and the best human contribution, I think, was six or seven out of 43 problems. They said, I, I, these are just rough uh, recollections. But I think they did figure out the folds for those particular uh, molecules, but of course, uh, there are infinite possible molecules. So, uh, so to solve 43 may not be, you know, it's a promising start, certainly. And it is something, it's something that machine learning achieved that human learning processes couldn't because of the conditions that I describe. It's de- a deterministic problem. The data can be expressed in a symbol language, a code, and it can benefit from the vast acceleration that computational silicon can achieve. This is quite an accomplishment. There was an effort at the University of Washington 20 years ago called Foldit, where they farmed out computational resources. So if you weren't using your computer at 2 a.m. in the morning, you let Foldit use it. And then they had some graphics, and then they decided to turn it into a game. And it turned out that people, uh, that is their customers, played the game and was were able to solve the fold problem where the algorithm was unable to do it. But that was 20 years ago. So we've made quite... Um, quite an advance since then. And the other thing that strikes me is, is folding protein is kind of like a game, right? That's what DeepMind does well. That's right. I mean, this is, you see, I began this subject really by going back to Bletchley Park in uh, Britain during this, during the Second World War when Alan Turing and B.J. Good uh, were 
key figures in solving all the German codes and, and thus making an absolutely vital contribution to the victory in the Second World War by uh, endowing the British military intelligence with the capability of interpreting all the German codes. It was an amazing feat. And it was, the c- computers were called the Colossus. Yes. And that, that, I think, was the first great feat of artificial intelligence. I mean, humans, no matter how many together, could not do essentially real-time breaking of uh, encryption in wartime codes. And yet this machine that uh, Turing and his team programmed could do this. And I learned that Turing and Good used to practice for their programming challenges by playing the game of Go. Really? They also played chess. And Turing taught Good the game of Go. And so Go was regarded as an, as an ultimate intellectual challenge, both, both in China and Japan. It, it's... Uh, it's really has a tremendous mystique in Asia. And what precipitated the, that giant Chinese AI program, 30 billion and more, that you've cited is uh, when uh, the DeepMind program beat uh, the Lee Sedol, who was the world champion in Go. And now to this day, People who say AI is going to usurp human brains and is going to take over the world and is going to replicate and advance and take over the universe and a singularity for the entire cosmos. People who believe that continue to cite the victory in Go and the victory in chess and the victory in these games. But uh, games are identified by the fact that the symbol systems and the actual objects, the maps and the territories, as it were, are the same thing. Yes. But we all know that maps, even no matter how refined the digital map, it differs inexorably from the actual territory. And it takes human beings interpretance, as Charles Sanders Peirce wrote many years ago, to um, mediate between the map and the territory. And it's uh, symbols and objects. There's no intrinsic identity between symbols and objects. And uh, if it's a game, the real... uh, essence of it is the symbol and the object is the same thing. In Go, you have these two little stones and you move them across a board with hundreds of points on it. And the symbols and the objects are the same. So that if you can uh, program the computer to uh, conduct these Go games at billions of cycles a second, they can obviously outperform any human being, but uh, that's because because there's no difference between the symbol and the object. But uh, the rest of the world where we live, 
we have symbols, we have mathematical languages, we have computer codes, we have a vast array of symbol systems which allow us to interpret reality, but the symbols are never the same as the reality. They are, they, they're labels. They got to be applied uh, by human minds to reality. As C.S. Peirce put it, they need an interpreter between the symbol and the object. And he contended on this basis that reality is not binary as a computer languages are. Uh, reality is triadic. It's three-way. Symbols, objects, plus interpretants. And uh, this is the flaw of always materialist superstitions, always uh, visions of, uh, based on games, successes in games, extrapolated to uh, successes in reduplicating human intellectual capabilities. We were talking last time about the AI movement in your book, and I like this, you list six assumptions of the AI movement. Now, these are not necessarily false. They're applicable sometimes, but I wanted to visit three of them. Uh, the first one was the modeling assumption, and we basically covered this, I think, in the first podcast. I don't know if you want to add anything, but uh, it is the assumption that a computer can deterministically model a brain. Now, I mentioned that some of these were false and some of these were true sometimes and not, but this one looks to be one that is patently false. Would you agree? I do. I started with Gödel's proof. You know, the whole computer industry seems to have forgotten the foundations of their science. Gödel really proved the incompleteness of all logical systems through imagining a kind of software system that uh, embodied uh, logical propositions from uh, Boolean concepts. And he proved using this software system that he conceived, it really was a software system, what we would call today a software system. He proved that all logical systems, including mathematics and arithmetic, arithmetic and Boolean algebra, uh, philosophical logic, whatever it is, they're all dependent on propositions beyond themselves that can't be reduced to the system itself. Alan Turing, who was the greatest the giant of computer science, along with John von Neumann, who, who really was propelled into computer science by Gödel and made Gödel famous. Gödel was a unknown 21-year-old, very nervous and uh, nerd at the time. And uh, von Neumann made him famous. But Turing really is the, is the giant. And Turing took Gödel's proof and applied it to computer science. And he really created it in his universal Turing machine, which is the fundamental architecture of a computer to this day. And he showed that 
no computer system can work without an outside interpreter, essentially. Turing called it an oracle, and that's where we get oracle computer. Turing said that every computer system has to have an oracle to interpret the world to it, and it's a repetition of Charles Peirce's insight that logic is triadic and uh, Gödel's insight that every logical scheme requires axioms outside itself, relies on axioms outside itself that can't be generated by the program. So this is, this is all basic computer science, really the history of how computers were invented. And uh, John von Neumann, Kurt Gödel, and Kurt Gödel became Einstein's greatest friend. And they uh, walked famously every day to the Woodrow Wilson Center in Princeton uh, discussing these baffling issues. And all this completely applies to artificial intelligence. They need oracles. They need outside axioms. They, uh, the machines can learn if the data is structured and uh, in a form that the machines can read. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so once again, you need a human mind. Uh, yeah, you mentioned also Girdle. By the way, I've I've plowed through his theorem, but it's um, it's most easily understood by looking at the work of Turing and later Gregory Chaitin, who is a guy that you mentioned. Yeah, Gregory Chaitin's a great. He's a he's another great figure who who really invented algorithmic information theory with Kolmogorov. Yeah, and they uh, they once again proved it again. And this is a great tradition in computer science that many of the actual engineers building computers have almost forgotten. Well, I don't know. I think that the, most of the computer scientists know about Girdle, hopefully, and they definitely know about Turing and the Turing halting problem and the great things that Turing did. Uh, are they living in a state of delusion by simply ignoring these facts and going ahead with their with their silly assumptions about what can be done in the future? Yeah, because they uphold the materialist superstition. It's their great religious faith that somehow that uh, if they make the computer go fast enough, it'll reach some kind of trigger point where Gödel and Turing and all the great figures and insuperable logical aporias disappear. It's kind yeah. of a faith in a magic moment in the materialist superstition. It's the religion of atheists. Very good. The other, we, we were going through the different, uh, you made six statements about assumptions of the AI movement. And we started with the modeling assumption. A second one was the big data assumption, that the bigger the data set, the better. There's no diminishing returns as data set gets larger and larger. Why is this an assumption? Is this I don't think this is true. I think you're going to get into problems. But what's your take on why this is a problem, why this is an assumption of the AI movement? Well, the, the AI movement explicitly believes that uh, part of this process of AI achieving a singularity is that 
it has so much data that the data essentially uh, becomes consonant with the world, su sufficient to completely and in detail model the, the world and, and the universe. And it's, it's the assumption that the more data you have, the smarter this AI is gonna grow. And I think that assumption is just wrong. Uh, the, all the data has to be structured. It has to be um, presented to the machine. It, it uh, all comes a cropper because of the, the basic problem of symbols and objects that I spoke of before. Symbols and objects aren't the same. And, and uh, the relationship between the symbols and the objects is not fixed. It changes. You know, you have a definite, you have a cat as a definition and the boundary conditions for cats. Where do they become bobcats? Where do they become lions? Where, where, where does the cat realm begin and end? What did cartoon cats, uh, you, you know, it's just <laughs> the AI began with the promise of telling cats from dogs. And they can sort of do that now. Uh, this was the other, uh, you know, AI is now conducted on what are called neural networks, which uh, leads to some of the delusional ideas that now we've broken beyond the Turing machine and we're now creating neural machines that somehow simulate human brains. You know, this hype has been around for a long time. I'm old enough to have lived through other so-called AI revolutions. And it, I don't know, the hype is just uh, repeating. People don't understand history, which is, which is a point you make in your book, in your monograph. And also in my other book, Life After Google, is my current book that uh, also addresses a lot of these subjects from a different point of view. Okay. Great. We, we will make, uh, by the way, in the podcast notes, we will make links to George's book. The fourth area of the assumptions of the AI movement, the third one I want to talk about is the ergodicity assumption. I got to tell you, George, I love the term ergodicity. I think that nerds are familiar with the concept of ergodicity from studying things like time series and stochastic processes, but applying it to AI was really I, I, I think it was just spot on. It identifies a, a limitation. And I think right. I told you my email that we are working here at Baylor University with a PhD student now trying to quantify the concept of ergodicity for artificial intelligence. Uh, to unpack ergodicity for us a little bit. Well, it, it means that the same inputs produce the same outputs for each process, roughly. I mean, they're... There are lots of refinements of the concept, but that in essence is what it says. And if the, the relationship between inputs and outputs changes frequently, as the real world uh, shows, then uh, your AI system will be wrong a lot of the time. It, 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 it's right for one relationship of inputs and outputs, but it can't uh, overcome the ergodicity problem that uh, inputs and outputs in the real world are continually evolving and changing and uh, tra transmuting. 
it's very clear there's lots of things out there that are non-ergodic. One is probably forecasting the market from tick data. I had a friend, Jack Marshall, who was a professor of financial engineering that was approached all the time by people that says, I have beat the market by artificial intelligence. And of course, doing so would have required ergodicity. Uh, Jack said he didn't even have to look at the program or the results. He simply asked the person who made the claim what kind of car they drove. And if, <laughs> if, if, if their program had indeed worked, they would be driving a very nice car. But most of these were poor students that had never reduced it to practice. So I think yeah. that's, that's the classic non-ergodic process, or one of them uh, is attempting to apply AI to tick data from the market in order to yeah. forecast it. You, you can, you can uh, calculate various probabilities and using probabilities does re- does result in and very massive fast parallel processing you can trade the market very successfully as you know one of the chapters of my book life after google and not to just but that one of the chapters tells the story of renaissance which uh, is the most successful investment fund in the world and and really in in history and and they accomplished this something like 40 percent or more growth for 20 years and uh profits for 20 years and they did accomplish it by using computers to very rapidly trade in the market and uh what they were doing was essentially front running they would gauge what people what participants in the market were doing and before they could complete their trades uh, the computer would accomplish the trade thus they'd front run and scored tremendous earth-shaking historic gains and I, I believe this kind of computation should not be legal in uh, stock markets but really uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, this is, if front running isn't legal for human humans, it shouldn't be legal for computers. And uh, it's just, uh, it's, a, it's using the speed of computation to game the markets, just as AI tries to game all these other dimensions of reality, like driving a car. It's also trying to game the markets. And the fact that they can conduct thousands of transactions while a human being is just reaching for the keyboard <laughs> means that uh, they can outtrade human beings, and that and I don't think that's a legitimate uh, technique. It has nothing to do with investment. I mean, now half of all the trades are uh, determined by computers on more than half the trades in the stock markets are determined by computers and they're trade they're fast trades and uh they don't have anything to do with investment there's no invest no no knowledge about specific technologies and companies and competitive environments and future possibilities it's it's all just identifying trading patterns before they happen. And, and I don't think that, that is, uh, that's an abuse of artificial intelligence. 
that's fascinating. Jack Marshall, the person I talked to you before, was not a believer in, in forecasting the market. I can understand short-term forecasting. Yeah, it's all very short-term. They, it's it's uh, thousands of transactions a second or a minute or whatever. I mean, it's something far beyond what any human trader can dream of accomplishing. So, so they can. So the, the calculation was that they could do four months of transactions in a second. So, you know, they're, they're not legitimate players in the market. They're, anti, they're outperforming humans simply by the speed of operations. I've heard that some trading companies have laid fiber between them and the market in order to get faster transactions to get a heads up on these sort of trades that you're talking about. Isn't it absurd? It's, well, it, that is <laughs> I mean, absurd. This has nothing to do with investment. No, this no. Is, <laughs> investment is learning. It's the growth of knowledge. Wealth is knowledge. Growth is learning. It's registered in all the learning curves that are the most thoroughly documented phenomenon in economics. Yes. And these computers are just learning about transitory patterns in the froth of trading. That has nothing to do with the learning processes that propel capitalist investment. You know, Jack Marshall said he used tick data to forecast futures. And I said, Jack, I thought you said you didn't believe in that. He says, well, in this case, it worked. He said everybody else in the futures market was using tick data and these indicators like stochastics and trend lines and things of that sort. And he said everybody was using my job was just figuring out a little bit earlier than the other people uh, what exactly they were going to buy and sell. So he was he was. Yeah, it was, that is an early example of front-running, I guess, yeah. but that was before the computers. Didn't this front-running uh, cause the, the flash crash that we saw a few years ago? Uh, it's believed to have. The, yeah, I mean, that it's, it causes a lot of volatility in the market, and I believe the cause of it is what I call the outsider trading scandal. The, because the SEC regulates inside trading, and uh, you know, prosecutors like Preparahara in New York very aggressively prosecute insider trade trades of any sort. You know, that poor woman uh, got sent to jail for two years for some phone call where she oh jeez, uh, what was her name? The uh, famous Martha Stewart. Uh, oh yes, yes, yeah. but. Uh, but Preet Bharara has never indicted a computer. So the result is that now half of all trades are computation. And you got these, all these exchange traded funds, which are ETFs, which are all computer contrivances. And uh, none of them contribute any information valuable to a long-term investment process. They're all just gaming the market like AI games go or, uh, or chess by performing projecting moves millions of times a second. I never thought of that. The market is kind of like a big chess game trying to anticipate moves. Not if people are actually investing for long-term gains. I don't think short-term trading is, is investment. 
They claim it affords liquidity, they, but uh, there's plenty of liquidity. You say there is reason to believe that AI is currently enjoying an Indian summer. First of all, I would question the political correctness of Indian summer. And uh, second, why uh, why do you believe that uh, why do you believe that we are on the verge of an Indian summer in artificial intelligence? Well, I just think the dreams that AI is cruising toward a singularity where it will essentially usurp human minds and then transcend the capabilities of human minds is delusional. And so today, uh, everybody's talking about AI and part of the mystique is the idea that AI and machine learning, where machines learn to recognize patterns without having the patterns fully specified ahead of time so that the machine can actually learn a subject by identifying repetitive patterns in it, that uh, this, this process at some point will allow the machine to design new machines, replicate themselves, and then design ever better machines that uh, ultimately acquire an intelligence that can be projected off into the universe and uh, can populate the universe with machine mind. And uh, this is, this is, this dream, it's sort of a religion of the nerds. It's the materialist superstition, the belief in a flat universe where there's nothing but material and the laws of chemistry and physics. This idea that uh, ultimately Human beings can uh, retire to beaches on a guaranteed annual income. Well, maybe uh, uh, Bryn and Page of Google and the other AI entrepreneurs fly off to nearby planets with Elon Musk in a winner-take-all <laughs> universe. This is sort of the dream of AI, and it's all going to come a cropper. AI can't do any of that stuff. It, it can do jobs that human beings define, it can perform with tremendous speed and efficiency, but it, it doesn't begin to, th to threaten human minds, to usurp human minds. It can amplify and extend and human minds and uh, relieve human minds of rote work that is really below human capabilities but it doesn't uh, pose any kind of threat to human minds or even jobs for that matter. You call super intelligence, which I believe requires creativity. And I think that we both agree that AI and computers can't be creative. Uh, you have to have a software that creates better software that creates better software. And that creativity is beyond the capability of artificial intelligence. You call super intelligence, the rapture of the nerds yeah. is one of the, one yeah. of the quotes that I really enjoyed. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. You, uh, as I recalled are, are neighbors with one of these uh, proponents of AI, Ray Kurzweil. Yeah. Ray is, if you look at closely at Ray's statements, they're becoming increasingly modest, you know. We are they okay? Yeah, they the singularity is coming, but the singularity won't really 
displace human beings, you know, will become better. And, you know, he understands that the idea of usurping human beings isn't a very popular vision or a very good business plan for uh, Google, where he now works as uh, chief of engineering. So I'm just saying that uh, I detect a certain moderation in race since he first pronounced the singularity. You know, there's been, in my perception, a decrease in talking about artificial general intelligence. You mentioned Ray Kurzweil, but I also see that from uh, DeepMind. A few years ago, that was that was just a really hot topic, but now it's it's been diminished. Uh, yep. We don't hear much talk about AGI anymore. That's because uh, you know AI is or is uh, application specific, essentially. It- it can be assigned to specific applications governed by specific symbol systems with specific levels of ergodicity and uh, assumptions that given inputs will always produce the same outputs, uh, determinist expectations. It, it has, it's, it's a computer system. And, it's, and uh, all computers are ultimately application-specific. What's going to be the future of computing technology? That's covered quite a bit in your book uh, uh, about Google. Yeah, life after Google is. Yes. I like to, to uh, it will end up serving human minds as computers always do. And I, I like to compare, I've started doing connectome studies. And I started reading about the connectome of the human brain. That's all... Uh, dendrites and axons and neurons and synapses in the human brain, all the various components, as they might be called, of this miraculous human brain from which somehow mind is emergent by some means that people don't yet fully understand at all. You know, they scarcely can model the brain of a worm or a fly so they really are still rather far short of uh, the mind of a man. So the connectome, there have been a whole series of books about the human brain and its connectome, and it was familiar to me because I previously had for decades been studying the Internet and the connectome of the Internet. And if you take the whole global Internet until a couple years ago, It took to map all the connections in the global internet. It took about a, about a zettabyte. That is 10 to the 21st power. And, uh, the total memory capacity of the entire internet was measured in zettabytes. And thus I was fascinated to discover in these books on the connectome. And, uh, there's one from MIT and there's, a number of them, they're cited in my monograph. And it turns out, how, how big do you think the connectome of one human mind is? It's about a zettabyte. In other words, one human brain is about as densely and complexly connected as the entire global internet. But one human brain functions on 12 to 14 watts of energy, while the global (laughs) internet takes gigawatts of energy, billions of watts. So ultimately, 
uh, people just don't really understand mind very well. And so when they talk about mind being a machine, they just don't understand it. They don't understand human beings created in the image of their creator to be creative and conscious. And all these uh, visions just are absent from the AI model. So this, the singularity is achieved not by a giant advance of technology, but by a delusional diminution of the human mind to a binary machine. Interesting. You said enthusiasts for connectome studies must face Stretton's paradox of connectome knowledge. I tried to Google Stretton's paradox, but couldn't find it. What, what is Stretton's paradox? This is Tony Stretton, who uh, worked with uh, you know the major biological laboratory at Cambridge in Britain, and then came to Wisconsin, where he's been a professor of biology for decades, and did the first full connectome of a nematode worm. And uh, he started out thinking this was going to be a simple job to really define uh, all the connections in the brain of a tiny worm, which is the smallest entity that's believed to have a, a full, discrete brain. And he, he said the more he learned about the brain of a nematode, the less he felt he knew. He was in the Newtonian. This could be called Newton's paradox, that the more he learned, the less he knew. Oh. <laughs> and the oceans of reality lay still far beyond his reach and beyond his ken. So the connectome doesn't suffice for the explanation of what's going on totally. Yeah. I guess. Well, oh yeah. Once you got the connectome, if you get it, once you get this connectome of the human brain, you still don't know how it works. Right. Well, you pretty much once you have a complete connectome for the internet, you probably know how it works pretty well because it's mostly binary computer processes concatenated around the world, and if you can really map them in detail, you pretty much have the definition or the schematic for the entire global internet. But um, you define the connectome of a mind and you, it still eludes you. So just because the human brain has a zettabyte in terms of its connectome, it still doesn't come close to explaining everything. Yeah. And, and so ultimately, computers work to the extent that they serve human minds. And that's always been the way, <clears throat> way they work. Uh, Turing's oracle, he said that no computer can function without an oracle that's independent of the computer itself. And uh, Gödel applied this principle first to all logical systems. They're all dependent on axioms that can't be reduced to the systems themselves, whether they're mathematics or algebra or computer algorithms or whatever they are, uh, they still can't be complete. It's called Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And Gödel and Einstein used to discuss this as they walked through the streets of Princeton for years. They were best friends and at the Woodrow Wilson Institute of Advanced Studies or whatever it was called. 
I understand that uh, Einstein went with Girdle when he got sworn in for U.S. citizenship, which was pretty cool. I guess they were really good friends. Yeah, yeah. I, I forgot that Einstein uh, testified for Girdle to get yes. him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, a little different topic. We've, we've talked about artificial general intelligence being reduced on the spectrum and, and discussion. And the reason, the reason for that is, is, uh, Turing, is Turing defined that also, because Turing said the Turing machine, which is a computational machine, a computer, could do anything any other machine mind could accomplish presuming infinite tape, infinite printer's ink, infinite possibilities. And of course, the, that's a pretty severe condition. Uh, you know, the defenders of the ultimate singularity think you go down to Fry's computer in Silicon Valley and buy various infinite tapes and infinite <laughs> memory systems. That cost too much, yeah. but but they they cost quite a lot. You know, you, you mentioned the uh, Turing's buddy Jack Good, and I learned from your monograph that he, again he was a colleague of Alan Turing, but he first voiced the idea of a singularity in 1965. Yeah, he called yeah. it an ultra-intelligent machine. Was he the first, do you believe, to talk about this idea of a, an intelligence explosion? You know, this goes all the way back to Babbage and uh, Ada Lovelace. And it's uh, all the people building computational machines always imagined that in some way they were reaching toward the cre- simulation of a human mind that it's really been the dream of computation virtually from its origins. And, and so lots of people through history have speculated on, you know, if you can build a, calcula- a calculating machine that can add subtract numbers, can't you imagine in some future era, it will be possible to create a gigantic calculating machine that can simulate a human mind. And uh, now we're here and uh, we are producing these giant binary calculators and imagining that they can simulate or in a singularity reproduce the human mind. And uh, once again, they're failing. But the more the f- they fail, the more they uphold the ultimate goal. It's the religion of the nerds, the rapture of the nerds. As I rapture call it. of the nerds. I love that. There's a bunch of stuff I'd like to talk about. Some of it's a little bit disjoint. Uh, let's talk about blockchain. Blockchain, of course, is the engine behind Bitcoin. And a few years ago, a few years ago, blockchains were supposed to be everywhere, but I haven't heard about them much in the news. Uh, what's happened to blockchains? You talked about blockchains a lot in your book, Life After Google. Well, blockchain, for one thing, the Chinese government under Xi Jinping, Chinese communist government, has adopted blockchain as a core technology for the future of China. Really? And has launched a blockchain platform for the entire Chinese economy and a new digital yuan currency 
that's uh, affiliated with their blockchain platform, their national blockchain network. And, and they're, uh, while, the, while American congressmen and senators are panicked by the idea that Facebook might launch a Libra on the blockchain and somehow undermine the venerable dollars, the Chinese are cruising on to adopt blockchain. And, and uh, I believe that we're headed towards some kind of monetary crisis where Bitcoin will have its day, although Bitcoin has real limitations that make it difficult to become a currency. So there's still room for uh, generating a currency that actually can expand with the global economy rather than be capped like Bitcoin at a absolute limit of 21 million units. So that's a limitation, right? That's that, a limitation. I see. That, that okay. renders it inherently a deflationary currency. And uh, that is, uh, that's a mistake. So, so Bitcoin has its flaws, but nonetheless, blockchain is a crucial new distributed architecture for the internet and for the global economy. And uh, unlike uh, the current internet architecture that's hacked 8 billion times a year now, it's every, the more we spend on internet security, the less secure the <laughs> internet becomes. It, it's eminently hackable. And world money is uh, now currency trading is $6.7 trillion a day. Whoa. And uh, that's uh, 70 times all world trade in goods and services, 70 times. And still, it's up 30% in the last three years. While trade, well, we have a trade war and trade actually diminishes by some measures. So certainly its growth has halted. And so uh, blockchain still has a critical role in the future of technology. It, uh, it can uh, provide the basis for a distributed uh, internet architecture rather than this porous pyramid we now have where all the data and money and power rises to the top where it's controlled by a few Leviathan social networks and search engines and whatever, and where it can be hacked. You know where it is. You know where the important information is. It's uh, at the top of the pyramid. Blockchain provides a model where the information's distributed across all the nodes in the network through a mathematical process called hashing. And it means that unless you control the whole network, you can't change anything that's uh, on the blockchain. And so it uh, is both an answer to this hacking of, of internet security and the hacking of global money by central banks and politicians. Do they literally hack the, um, the encryption? That's impossible. That's not possible, is it? No, no, the central banks don't, they just hack the currency. They just manipulate it and multiply it and divide it and use it as a magic wand for political causes 
rather than a measuring stick for value, which is what a, what money should be and what real money is. Money is really uh, based on what remains scarce when everything else is abundant, and that is time. Time is what money really is. Money translates time, which governs every economic transaction and enterprise. Money translates time fungibly into the economy. So blockchains uh, are really useful for any kind of uh, computational process or transactional process that uh, needs a ground state, needs a secure ground state that can't be manipulated. So blockchains are going to be very useful in the future, and, and they actually are. They're, you know, the blockchain advances come almost daily, and the Chinese breakthrough is just amazing. So the blockchain is, uh, is real. In my book, uh, <laughs> Life After Google, Became, with, became for a while a second bestseller in China, and it got the award last year or as the best social science book in China, published in China. Wow. So, so that's why I've been in China so much in the, over the last year, uh, chasing life after Google. And, <laughs> and they've really adopted its message. I don't know whether they will, you know, it'll probably be a somewhat porous blockchain that, with backdoors for the communist potentates, but but blockchain is pretty hard to manipulate. So there's going to be a struggle in China to define uh, the limits of the blockchain and how it functions, and it's going to be very interesting to watch because it does give you identity. And, you know, a lot of people think that uh, facial recognition is a threat to identity. I want to be recognized when I go out to the airport or whatever, rather than being treated like a terrorist as the <laughs> as, as the TSA has to do. Treat everybody yeah. as a terrorist if they can actually yeah. identify you as the nuclear system. And a lot of the airports now do. And they're, they're trying to make advances which use face recognition. And and it's great to have your Apple iPhone that can see you and recognize your face and let you in immediately rather than have you have to recall which unmemorable password, complex number password you happen to adopt for any particular app. And so... I like face recognition, and I, I just think we're making some mistakes in the understanding of new technology that derive from our belief in a singularity, this idea that somehow technology threatens the human mind, threatens human jobs, threatens uh, human uniqueness. Uh, that belief is uh, really crippling our technology because we it makes people fearful. And actually technology is, is good. It creates jobs always. It doesn't, it, technology never destroys jobs. It, it, at least in a free economy, it, it generates the capital to create new work. People don't get hired 
because they're unproductive. Uh, AI and other such technologies make people more productive and thus more employable and uh, provide better jobs, safer jobs, and more creative jobs. And so my whole theme is this is a, AI is a hopeful, wonderful new amplifier of human work and employment, not a, a threat to uh, human uniqueness or capabilities. I agree. Yes. If, if it's, if it's done right, there'll be problems, but I think those can be mitigated. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about Bitcoin back to Bitcoin. Uh, you're familiar with the dread pirate Roberts and his yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. website on the dark web for selling drugs. Yeah. He used Bitcoin and he escaped detection for a long time. That was one of the things about Bitcoin, which was attractive is everybody can be anonymous. I like the idea because I don't know if I want my government or anybody else knowing what transactions I make. Uh, but what's the privacy uh, sort of issue? I also read that in South Korea, that a dark web website in kitty porn was broken, and it was because of the visibility of Bitcoin. Are, are there new laws put into effect to make the ownership of Bitcoin more visible and more accessible to, say, governments? No, no, it's, it's just uh, the, the Bitcoin can be, it's transparent. It's Bitcoin is more transparent than cash is. It's as Dread Pirate Roberts discovered. I mean, they Bitcoin uh, is an immutable database, and uh, every transaction deep into the past is mathematically present in every future transaction. So it's this is an effect of both the incredibly efficient mathematical procedures of of hashes, as they're called, where you represent a large body of data with a 36-byte hash, and, and also um, not only the hashing, but the fantastic advancement of memory technology, which is memory and storage technology, which is allowed you to have a simulacrum of all the transactions in a system on every node in the system. And that's an amazing technological advance, but it means they're all there and you have the public key and you have the private key connected to it. And ultimately you can track down any criminal who uses Bitcoin. It's just a new form of cash that actually is more transparent and traceable than cash is. Well, they had a hard time getting the Dread Pirate Roberts. They got him in a sting, according to the book. I don't know how reliable the book is. I but, read the uh, book. I, I, I know, know the family and, uh, you know, supposedly there were, uh, he just made a terrible mistake in dealing with these hitmen and, uh, it was really an evil blunder, and uh, he's paying the price. His parents claim that he hardly knew about it, and that's possible. You don't know. But in any case, they got him as, as soon as they wanted to. You know, for a while, it was the 
most successful sort of database and and online market on the internet. And it took a while before the police decided to crack down on it. That was just a fascinating story. Yeah, it is a fascinating story. It was, and one of the cops got corrupted, so he's in jail too. The cop that actually broke it got tempted and tried to steal some bitcoins, I think, and he's, he's in jail too. I mean, it was really a carnival of police powers and, but, uh, but it was, it's, it's this anarchist impulse where all forms of drugs and, and the illegal behaviors and everything can be concealed with this new currency that, whether it's Monero or Zcash or whatever it is, but all of them ultimately can be, you know, traced and broken down. Ultimately, the people, it's the people you're going to get, and you can find them. And <laughs> if you find them, you can question them, and, and you can uh, find out what they've been doing. You know, Bitcoin is, um, works because of encryption. And let's go to the next topic, which is quantum computing, which threatens to expose and make classical encryption obsolete. What, what's your take on quantum computing? It seems to me that there's been a glacial progress in the technology. I think quantum computing is rather like AI in that it moves the actual problem outside the computational process and gives the illusion that it solved the problem, but it's really just pushed the problem to I.O., input-output. And uh, quantum computing is analog computing. That's what it is. It's, it's changing the primitives of the computation to quantum elements, which are presumably the substance of all matter, in the universe, and I, I consider, uh, but but still, you got to translate the symbols in the world, which in turn have to be translated from the objects in the world into these qubits, which are uh, quantum entities, and uh, then from there, you then you can once you've defined all these connections and structured the data then uh, the problem is essentially solved by the process of defining it and inputting it into the computer. And it, I think, uh, you know, a, a wonderful uh, physicist at MIT named Seth Lloyd has written about this yes. a lot. He believes the whole universe is a quantum computer, which from some point of view you could say. And so God is really a quantum computer, and you're essentially praying when you use the quantum computer. Uh, you're, um, it's sort of a, a new rapture of the nerds. And, but quantum computing, again, is a very special purpose machine, extremely special purpose, so, because it's, everything has to be exactly structured right for it. And so it's, it's, uh, you may be able to build it, build one that can perform one for, that can break one form of encryption, 
but uh, then you just change the, there are all sorts of ways to circumvent this threat that quantum computing supposedly poses to uh, Bitcoin and other such encryption-based technologies in the cryptocosm. If, if it really became robust and good, you could use it to encrypt too, so... Yeah, that's my point. I think that once we get uh, quantum computing, and if it works well, we can also do quantum encryption, which quantum computing can't uh, decode. So that's that's the next step. So the, yeah, that's that's fascinating stuff. One of the things that I heard you talk about, uh, and I know you're an early proponent of it, is carbon computing. The idea is really compelling because the computational part of human beings is definitely carbon-based, but we haven't gone there, have we? we uh, we're still in silicon. What, what's, what's going on in carbon computing, and what do you see as the future of it? Well, so, silicon is, is popular because it's simple and because it uh, yields these very rapid computations with binary systems, you know, uh, on-off codes, ones and zeros. And ones and zeros can be manipulated at fabulous speeds. And that's why the whole computing revolution happened, because you could really manipulate symbols at a tremendous speed. But the cost of this is the symbols got to be translated into objects. Well, carbon, since we're all carbon, and carbon is much more complex and affords many more, more degrees of freedom in uh, materials and carbon and shapes, carbon nanotubes. We're beginning to make memories with carbon nanotubes and simulate behavior with carbon nanotubes and filter with them. There are all kinds of carbon and and many of our Screens now, the computer screens are carbon-based now. And so carbon is gradually moving into the computational world. And in order to make any real long-term advances in uh, computation, I think rather than uh, grasping for elusive quantum superpositions, you can actually simulate the brain of a fly in carbon. Uh, we still can't, uh, we still don't know how the fly eludes the, the swatter. And uh, the Carver Mead always says that uh, understand the human brain, we don't even understand how a brain of a fly allows it to elude the swatter. It's too light to fly, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're just, the world is much more mysterious than the advocates of the singularity imagine. Yes, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, as, as somebody That's said. That's right. That's right. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the stories I, I like to share was an old science fiction story about why humans by necessity must be carbon based. And that is because we breathe in oxygen and we exhale carbon dioxide. Right. If we were made of silicon, we would in breathe in oxygen and exhale silicon dioxide, which is a solid. <laughs> that's a good, that's good. Yeah. So we would uh, probably be crushed by our own breath when we slept at night. So uh, that's the reason that we are, uh, we, <laughs> that we are carbon based as opposed to uh, silicon based. I'm convinced that, that, 
that strikes me as intelligent in its <laughs> design. You. Oh, George Gilder, thank you. I've, I've had a blast talking to you. Really appreciate your time and your contributions. I much appreciate it. We've been talking to George Gilder, whose fascinating monograph, Gaming Intelligence, Why AI Can't Think But Can Transform Jobs, is available at Amazon.com. And I recommend it highly. It's very readable, very understandable, and a lot, uh, like a lot of George's work, is, uh, is profound and just chock full of meaningful ideas. So until next time on Mind Matters News, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.